0: to Isaiah 52, we come now to the fourth song of the servant. Ultimately, this is the greatest of the songs, for it clearly lays out redemption of mankind and the propitiation provided by the servant. Unfortunately, most people don't know that it begins in Isaiah 52, not Isaiah 53, So Isaiah 52, verse 13, is where we'll start. Today we're just going to read the first six verses of this song, so the first three verses into Isaiah 53. We'll meditate on these glorious words of the servant and his career. This career has already been alluded to in the previous songs of the servant. His career involves the communication of truth, but this song lays out the fullness of truth being established and it's done through suffering. Suffering is uh, absolutely the word that best describes the servant here. So we can say that the career of the servant is synonymous with suffering. The message of this song is one of, actually, it's one of high joy, And yet, it takes us to the lowest, deepest sorrows. Unlike the song in chapter 50, where the servant is speaking, here the servant is being spoken of. He's being described. He is the object, we could say, of discussion. And so, I'm going to ask you if you would read, starting in fifty-two, Isaiah 52, verse 13. It's a very interesting song. We're we're very familiar with it, I'm sure. I'm ashamed to tell you that I studied this out this week and came to these great realizations. I've preached on this passage before, but I didn't look at my my sermon from before, and I studied this out as if it was the first time I was studying it out, and I, I came to these incredible realizations that I have never come to before. And then I went back and read my sermon from last time and realized I came to those conclusions that time as well. And so I'm ashamed to tell you it didn't stick. I can't believe, after studying, that I didn't already know that I had studied these things. And is that not what Scripture is like? The depths of Scripture are so deep that we can plumb them as often as we try and still not learn these things. And so I ask you to learn or relearn these things with me as we start in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings, shall shut their mouths at him. For what they had been, not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This song takes a, a different route. It starts at the exaltation of the servant. And then descends to the deepest depths of sorrow to his destruction. And as we continue to study it next week into Isaiah 53, it will rise back again to his exaltation. And the reason I think that is happening is because the servant lives outside of time. We've talked about this at every one of the songs. The servant is beyond time. So as he embarks upon this career, as he steps into human form, takes upon him the form of a servant, and and submits to death on the cross, he is considered that his task is already complete. It's as good as done. The promises were made, and he will accomplish everything that he said he would do. And so it's as if he is already exalted because he deserves it because he is the Lord. And so we start with the success of the servant in verse 13. He is greatly exalted after being deeply humiliated here. And so we start with his success. This song is so dark that it must first acknowledge the victory or the light that is at the conclusion. And the language, I don't want you to mistake the language of Isaiah 53, when we get into Isaiah 53, and how dark this truly is. And so he begins with the light. He begins with the exaltation of the servant. And so the conclusion is where we start. The servant will complete everything that he promises to complete. He will accomplish a victory that none of us could ever accomplish. Even when everything seems impossible, he will be lifted up. And so we get this this statement of of grandeur in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. The servant, in other words, will return to his throne. And listen, if all the other songs, the other uh, servant songs that we've already studied have been uh, a little bit, Maybe gentle at times in alluding to who the Savior will be. At times, just uh, sprinkling in here and there a, a little reference or prophecy concerning the Messiah. This song is absolutely clear. In fact, as we, as we read this psalm, there can be no doubt who the servant is. The servant is Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And, and, and from the very beginning, that's made clear. He is one who was exalted, who descends to the lowest depths of humanity only to rise again to his exalted state, his position. And so we we see the word here, exalted, extolled, and lifted high. The servant left the throne, descended into the deepest darkness and the most vile gloom of mankind for the purpose of rising back to his rightful position as victor. And so he is exalted. That means to be set on high or to set into a place of honor. To be, to be told where to sit because he is the only one who deserves to sit there. He's also extolled. That means to be lifted up or magnified in above others. So of all the great names, of all the great people, of all the great servants of time, he is magnified far above them. No one can compare. He is the one who is lifted up high above all the others. And yet that's not how his journey begins here as the suffering servant. In verse 14, we're told just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred. And then verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. We've got this double statement actually made here and they're both in relation going back to the first line of verse 14 just as many were astonished at you so in other words there's two astonishments going on here and and we know that because that word so so uh his visage was marred and so shall he sprinkle many nations he has this astonishing career in other words this task that he's going to do is going to leave people in awe and wonderment as to how he did it. The first is actually a negative. He is astonishing. His astonishing career, people will be astonished at his demise. In other words, his physical torture, his torment is irreparable just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So his visual appearance was destroyed more than any other person in history. This language is very clear. The servant would be so brutalized that he will become unrecognizable even by those who loved him most. Now think about that, especially in the, in the context of Christ hanging on the cross and his own mother standing below him. Could not recognize him as her son, other than the fact that she knew who it was who was hanging under that sign. That's the idea. here. His visual appearance is destroyed, the brutal torture and beatings led to the servant being unrecognizable, the hatred of mankind poured out with ruthless rage on the most innocent man to ever live, and this highlights horribly the absolute depravity and wickedness of man to desecrate the most holy God, right, this is not just They beat him because they thought he was a criminal. They hated him to the point that they wanted to destroy the very image of who he is to make him unrecognizable. That's the hatred of mankind upon his visual appearance here. And his form, this this is his body, the suffering of his body is beyond reason. His form more than the sons of men. The people are astonished when they look upon Christ When they look upon the servant and they see the person who endured more physical torment, more extreme suffering than anyone has ever endured in all of time. Now that's quite a statement when it comes to torture. Mankind is especially ingenuitive in the the manner in which they can torture people. And yet here the Romans who have perfected this art of crucifixion, at times it takes days and days for people to, to die from suffocation as they hang upon a cross. That's really what they die from. They lose their strength, their ability to pull themselves up on on the the nails and and relieve themselves with just a sparse breath to the point where they suffocate in their own blood and their own loss of strength. And yet Christ doesn't even get to that point. He doesn't get to the point where he suffocated on the cross because his body was so brutalized and so broken. And then, of course, because he chose to end it by saying, it is finished. And his form here is beyond extreme, the extremes of what the Roman uh, and human brutalization can come up with, can concoct. And it's the culmination, we could say, of the cruelty of all of God's enemies. This treatment of the Messiah Leaves people astonished, or we could say appalled in its negative form. They're appalled at the Messiah's humiliation. Likely, they're sick and disgusted as they look upon him makes the claim of the centurion soldier all the more powerful as he acknowledges the purity of the Son of God in contrast to the wickedness and the wicked treatment of sinners when he cries out, certainly this was a righteous man. And so the people that stand there at the foot of the cross and look at the Savior are astonished or appalled. They're appalled at what they see. They're appalled at the 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 very image of who it is who's hanging, whose flesh is literally hanging off his body as he hangs upon the cross. And they're appalled at who he said he would be and who they thought they wanted. There's kind of this double statement made here. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted somebody who would ride in and 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 dethrone the Romans and elevate the Israelites to their rightful heir in the promised land. And instead they got this man who humbled himself and who allowed himself to be arrested. And allows himself to be beaten and mistreated to the point where he's hanging on this cross dying. And so some people are appalled as they look at him. At the fact that they could have followed such a man who allowed himself to be put in this, in this position. They're disappointed. In him. He ends up just another desecrated criminal on a cross. Well, there's a second astonishment, and this one is the positive. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. So the second astonishment is actually at his victory. The first is his demise. The second is at the manner in which he rose. The manner in which he displayed his godhood, his authority, his messiahship. And so this is the magnificent rise of the servant back to his rightful throne. And it's to the astonishment of people. The word sprinkle does not do us justice. So shall he burst forth before many nations, you could say. The the word sprinkle means to spurt, like a geyser that might erupt all of a sudden and sprays everywhere and sprinkles everything that's near it. That's the idea. Everyone has, has stared upon him and looked in disgust at his marred body as it hangs upon the cross shaking their heads in shame that they ever trusted this type of a man. Only three days later, for the grave to be burst open, and Christ rises to his rightful throne, ascending on high to be exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what astonishes them next. And so the nations are so surprised at the unexpected victory of the servant. They're startled at his rise to glory and the glory to which he rises too, the people of nations are so lost and hopeless that the victorious rise of the servant brings them excitement and astonishment. They tremble at what they see. In fact, kings will be will be speechless. They will shut their mouths at him. And here's the point: kings are used to being in charge and they're used to giving their opinion and everything they say goes and everyone listens to what they have to say because they're the most important people in the kingdom and, and, and so their word is authority and yet now they shut their mouths for one of greater authority has arisen. They have nothing to say. In fact, the idea is these kings who usually speak their mind freely now feel wholly inadequate to speak about the servants. In embarrassment, they remain silent because they could never comprehend or accomplish what the servant has done. And so they contemplate in shameful silence the glory of God and the magnitude of the servant's authority as he ascends to the throne on high. They're quiet and they consider who it is who sits on this throne. And that's where we are today. None of us stood at the foot of the cross and saw the incredible cruelty of mankind as he suffered and bled and died. But neither did we stand in front of an open tomb and realize that he had burst forth from death in the grave. And yet we know these things. And so, in that way, we too have an opportunity to stand astonished before this servant. And yet, many people do not. In fact, verse chapter 53 begins with a bit of rhetorical questions Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's actually a misunderstanding now, they don't realize what it is that they've seen. And what they've heard, they don't realize the magnitude of God's uh, righteousness. This servant, as he rises to his rightful throne, they don't know what to make of it. And so in misunderstanding, they deemed him to be insignificant. We're going backwards in the story. We're going now back to the beginning, where Christ uh, uh, comes to earth and takes upon the, himself the form of a man, the form of a servant, and yet the world despised him for it. And so we begin now at the beginning of his career. And This is why many people don't understand this goes together, uh, 52 and 53, because we read 53 verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, and it's, it's the beginning of the life of the Messiah. And yet, the beginning is all for the end. And so they ask these questions, who has believed our report? Who believed what we thought to be true of this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We thought God had revealed the truth to us about who the Messiah is. We thought it was this man from Nazareth. Were we wrong? And so there's disbelief in the servant's value. People will wonder if the things that they read or hear could possibly be true. Believes, or they wonder, how can people miss the fact? This is what we do now. Back in the day, they wondered if what they had heard and what they had seen was really true. And yet as a believer, sometimes I wonder, how can people miss the fact? that Jesus is the Messiah. Have you ever thought that as a believer? Have you ever thought as a Christian, with everything that you read here in Scripture, not just Scripture, but what you know to be true in your heart because of what God has has taught you and what God has convicted and convinced you of being true. And besides that, even history doesn't even deny who Jesus is. Have you ever, with all those things in mind, step back and think, how can people miss the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? It is so clear. That's the same kind of question. People wonder, can they really trust this report of the Messiah? This is like overhearing the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 43, verse 13. They say, now behold, two of them are traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And yet they don't understand what it is that they're, that they're seeing or that they're hearing. In fact, Luke goes on. Because the Messiah walks up amongst them and they don't even understand it. They don't know. Their eyes are, are hidden from this truth. And in verse 19, Jesus speaks and he said to them, what things, what things is it you've heard that you don't understand? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now listen to that. This is what Isaiah is talking about. Two disciples who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus. We don't know if these are two of the twelve or two of the peripheral disciples. But they're sitting there wondering. They're just walking on the Emmaus Road. And they're wondering, who really was Jesus? They're almost exactly saying the words. Of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so Jesus does something incredible. They wonder, how can he not know who he is? Verse 20, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. Astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, But him they did not see. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They missed the point. These are his very disciples, and they missed the point, and they asked the question, who was he? We thought he was a prophet. They missed the point. Just like Isaiah 53 said they would. And so people's first reaction is one of total unbelief. How could he be God and still die? If he was God, why didn't he save himself? Couldn't he just overthrow his attackers? We believed his words, but now it is hard to believe. Did we mishear him? Did we mishear his claims to be one with God? And so they question and they doubt. And why do they doubt? Verse 2, because of how he appeared. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. When you look at the upbringing of Jesus. By by the way, even religious leaders said this. What good thing, even Nathanael, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Hey, we found the Messiah. And they ask, where was he? He came from Nazareth. No, no, no. Nazareth, that's a dump. Right? That, that place is of little insignificance. The Messiah doesn't come from there. Only a nobody is from Nazareth. And they don't want to believe. He's insi- insignificant. His upbringing is obscure. That's what it means when it says he, he grew out like a shoot out of arid soil. It's unexpected. What's this? plant growing in the desert this is an arid place why how is this even growing here and they're going to look at jesus and they're going to be like, how, how could jesus come how could the messiah how could the servant rise from a place like that not true not only does he rise from humble beginnings to the point that they doubt he could be the servant he's also lacking attraction now We love to picture Jesus in the perfections of human beauty. And yet his appearance is one of humility. It says he has no form or comeliness. There's a a plainness about him in human form that leaves people going, yeah, he doesn't look important. He doesn't act important. He's not good-looking. And boy, are we duped by people who are good-looking sometimes. We think if they're good-looking, they must, they must have something going for them. Or if they're, they're big, they must be a good leader. We look so quickly on the outward appearance, and that's the point. There is nothing outwardly attractive about the Messiah, the servant. There's nothing that people look at him and say, Wow, he'll make a great leader. We should follow him. In fact, it's the opposite. His appearance might even have been a bit repulsive or at least contemptible, and it creates no physical desire for people to follow him. On top of that, he is despised, it says, despised by powerful people. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They see no value in him. There's nothing to exploit in this Messiah. There's no outward value or no, no inner Strength that we can use no qualities that generate authority and so they drew back they withheld any interest in him essentially they deem him to be a nobody and so with the eyes of men they consider him to be of no value and yet the servant has more value than all of them combined because he is god in the flesh and god knows the value of of the spiritual being. On top of that, not just an ordinary appearance or even an ugly, what people would say, an ugly appearance. On top of that, he is weighed down in sorrow. Right? Now, I believe Jesus smiled and I believe he laughed. I believe he expressed all the wonderful God-made emotions of man. But overall, his personality is one that is weighed down in sorrow. He is acquainted with grief. Why? I think we could say there's a seriousness about the servant. He is consumed with the weight of sin's consequences. Not his own sin. He didn't have sin. But the consequences of the sin of this world. He's serious about life and he's concerned with the spiritual impact upon the lives of people around him. Right? This is seen when he speaks, when Jesus speaks with Peter, and he tells Peter that Satan desires you. And he desires to see you like wheat and throw you up in the air like chaff that will be blown away and be of no value and Jesus is hurt by that and here's what's amazing Peter's indifferent Peter thinks that he's strong and peter thinks that he's going to stand next to the savior he's going to stand next to messiah he will never run he will never falter he will never give up he will be the one who will be faithful to the servant all the way to death he will stand with him and yet in a few hours he will flee for his own life not because his life is being threatened but because he's embarrassed and jesus knows all of that he's acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, because he sees the true pain of the world and it's linked to the spiritual realm and he is disturbed at the pain that people experience in fact I think it's fair to say that the servant here feels pain for the, the spiritual failures of mankind more than the people feel it for themselves The servant desires the spiritual growth of the people more than they desire it for themselves. The servant desires salvation for the soul of these people more than they want it for themselves. And yet he's rejected. He's rejected for not being a man of great physical authority, or outward beauty, or an exuberant personality. He's rejected and ignored because he spends himself addressing the true spiritual needs of the souls around him. He lives for others. He lives to heal and to comfort and to raise up the broken in heart, those who are broken in sin and yet don't even realize it. And for that, he's rejected. People look at the servant. And think he is wasting his life for the pains and the struggles of people around him. He's not using his life to get ahead. He's not using his life to provide value to the world around him. He's just squandering his life in servanthood. And they're appalled at it. it. Goes all the way back to verse 14. They're appalled that. Is concerned with these things. This is where we're going to end today. But I want to ask you very carefully, our believers here today can this same thing be said of you? Do you take seriously the consequences of sin to the point that we are willing to suffer? alongside of other people in their pain? Because that's the heart of the Savior here. I'm not saying we can redeem anyone. I can't die for any of you. I can't atone for your sin. I can't even atone for my own sin. But are we willing to endure pain and struggle and discomfort with other people So that we can point them to the Savior, the one who died for them. Are you willing to suffer with other people in their discomforts in order that you might bring them closer to the Savior? By the way, this is the same thing that Jesus spoke of in the New Testament when he talks to believers in the church about how they're to interact with other believers. In Galatians 6, 2, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3, 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Are you willing to suffer alongside of other people in this church who are struggling in sin? Are you willing to care enough about their soul, maybe even more than they do in the moment, about their own spiritual well being, even if it means you might be rejected or hated? there's a second component here because we, Christ gives us commands. The little literal words of Christ in Luke chapter 6 are speaking of a believer to an unbeliever. Are you willing to go to the gutter, not to participate in sin, but to find those who are broken in their sin and introduce them to the Savior? Luke chapter 6, verse 29, to him who strikes you on one cheek, Offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. What does Jesus say? But love your enemies. Do good and lend hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. That's how Christ tells us to interact. Father, we thank you that you were willing to do what none of us would be willing to do, and that is suffer and die a tortured death, rejected by the very people that you were trying to save. Oh, at times, Lord, we are quick to try and help people, but the moment they turn against us, we say anathema and leave them. But you, Lord, when rejected and hated and despised and spit upon and beaten, you loved, you turned the other cheek and you gave your life for our redemption. Lord, we thank you that this passage in Scripture leaves no doubt in our mind that you are the rightful Messiah. The world hates this chapter. The very Jews that you came to save hate this chapter and refuse to read it. And at times, we once hated this chapter too. I pray that you would strike our hearts when we are so quick to respond in our own self-love that we refuse to care for fellow sinners around us. Lord, help us to invest in our fellow church members that we would walk alongside them, bear their burdens, be quick to forgive even when they never reciprocate. Lord, help us to be like you. most importantly, Lord, we thank you that on that day that you hung appalled by the very people that you came to save, that you thought of each one of us. That every blow to your face that would grab a section of your beard and pluck it out, you did that for me. And every whip that tore at your flesh, leaving it hanging from your body. It's because of my iniquity. Our iniquity. And you did it because you loved us. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not understand that, or has never humbled themselves, become astonished, rose from the dead, defeating death because you are God. And that you did it to redeem them, to buy them back from their own sins and their own wickedness. I pray, Lord, today would be the day they would humble themselves and admit that. Most of us sit here today having already realized depths of our depravity and our need for you. And so we rejoice with those who right now are understanding what your salvation on the cross truly meant. I pray that we would give you the highest praise for it, or that what you accomplished on the cross was astonishingly powerful. You did not just defeat death and rise from the dead. You ascended to your rightful throne on high, that every person will look at you, every king of this earth, every man, woman, and child will one day stand before you, kneel before you, and say that you, Lord, are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we thank you and we praise you and we look forward to the day when we too will bow our knees literally at your throne and exalt your name. We thank you for this goodness. May the richness of the words that we are about to sing bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.